So Money Episode 1243, Daisha Kennedy, creator of the award-winning financial advocacy group, The Broke Black Girl. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. When I was getting online and I was finding communities around personal finance or when I was going into other financial institutions looking to work with someone one on one, it just seemed to be a major disconnect. I always felt like they were talking at me, not to me, not with me, not trying to really understand who I was, what my background was with money, what was a good learning style for me. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. Kicking off this week, we are in conversation with one of the rising stars in personal finance, Daisha Kennedy. She's the creator of the award-winning financial advocacy group, The Broke Black Girl. As a digital community leader and financial activist, Daisha provides culturally competent and relevant financial literacy resources to over 70,000 African-American women to combat economic inequality. Daisha started this community out of her own frustrations. Together, we discuss some of the systemic issues that people of color still face when it comes to achieving wealth, the hot button issue of childcare, and how fixing that broken system could help so many women and parents. And advice for couples. Daisha learned the hard way after a divorce the importance of discussing money in your relationship. Here's Daisha Kennedy. Daisha Kennedy, welcome to So Money. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. I don't know if your ears were ringing, but I was I was talking to my best friend the other day about all the cool people in personal finance. And she's like, have you spoken to Daisha Kennedy yet? Uh, broke black girl? And I said, Honestly, no. And I'm I'm a bit embarrassed about that. So in any case, we were praising you and I immediately, you know, went on Twitter and and sent you a note. And I'm so glad that you're making time for us because I think we could learn a lot from you. Oh yes. I'm I'm actually very excited to be here. I have seen your podcast around a lot. Mm -hmm. I've seen some of the conversations that you've had centered around money. So I'm very excited. Yeah, I'm I'm particularly looking forward to sharing your ideas about, you know, what is a today a more culturally relevant financial education. You speak to primarily uh-huh. African American women. You've helped over, I think by now, probably more than 70,000 African American women get yeah. a handle on their money. I want to talk about your upbringing. I learned uh, in my research that you're a daughter to teenage parents and that's unique in that I'm sure your experience and understanding of money was impacted by that. And I know that you learned about money the hard way, like a lot of us do. You are the founder of the Broke Black Girl. Let's start there. Let's start with, you know, the the genesis of that. And, you know, I love that you insist on not just being called a financial expert, but a financial activist. And your activism started on Facebook not too long ago, and you've grown quite quickly since then. So take us back to the beginning days of the Broke Black Girl and what that was all about for you. 
Well, yeah. So, of course, as you stated, my name is Daisha Kennedy. I created The Broke Black Girl back in 2017. Um, at that time, I was really at a very interesting place, fresh out of a divorce. I have two children of my own. I had my first son when I was 19 years old. And I had a very, well, what I thought to be a very well-paying job working in a financial institution. But I still found myself drowning in debt. I really was living a paycheck to paycheck lifestyle. And I just knew that I wasn't the only one that was experiencing what I was experiencing when I was getting online and I was finding communities around personal finance or when I was going into other financial institutions looking to work with someone one-on-one. It just seemed to be a major disconnect. I always felt like they were talking at me, not to me, not with me, not trying to really understand who I was, what my background was with money, what was a good learning style for me. It was almost like they had to stick to a script based off whatever company that they worked for. Maybe they had to stick to a script. They couldn't really deviate that to put the human feel to personal finance. So I would leave sometimes feeling defeated. I really didn't feel like I was sitting down with someone who understood what it deeply meant to be a black woman in America navigating my personal finance journey, what that meant for me personally, Mm -hmm. what that meant for me politically, and all of the different ways that it impacts my finances and my ability to build wealth. I didn't feel like I was finding a space that understood that. So I wanted to create it. So with Mm -hmm. a click of a button, I created a Facebook group. I, at the time, I just wanted to create this space and say, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. I worked in finance for a few years. These are some of the things that I know I can share with you guys as much as I know. You know something you share with me. And we have this safe space where we come together and we try to figure this out together. And in less than, at the time, it probably was like a year, the group had like 40,000 African-American women in the group. And what you started to see was people were coming in with individual needs where it was like, oh, I need help with budgeting. I need help with getting out of debt. And then over time, it shifted from an individual perspective to a community perspective where you have a a handful of double thousands of women that understand what we are experiencing culturally and how to give the information in a way that we feel respected and understood and supported. And people were able to walk away and retain that information and actually use it. So what were some of the questions, Daisha, that you were asking initially before you started Broke Black Girl? You said you were, you know, uh, working and you worked in the financial industry. So you had a basic knowledge. Mm-hmm. And there was like a disconnect for you. People weren't either giving you the right advice or really weren't understanding your experience. So what were the questions that you were trying to find answers to that you were unsuccessful? So one of the main things, and I tell this story a lot because this really was something that 
that stuck with me. Um, I attended, it was a, a, a bank. They had a free personal finance budgeting class. So I attended it, you know, I'm thinking, oh, you know, it's a bank, it's a major bank. This is going to be amazing. And I get in the room, you know, and, and I look around the room and before the event started, a lot of us were talking and I talked to a few women and most of them were single mothers who were at the event that day. Um, majority of them were African-American. It wasn't an African-American community where I attended the event. And when we got to the section of budgeting and we were talking about living paycheck to paycheck, the only thing that the representative kept saying was, and if you don't make enough money, get another job, get a second job. And to me, it was the most tone deaf thing that I had ever heard because it's like, if you understood the audience that's in the room, it, it's a handful of single mothers. What do, that doesn't help us. We we don't have the time to get us you know a, a second job. So if the issue is we're living paycheck to paycheck, let's first un- figure out why. Why why is that? Why is that happening? Is the expenses too high? Is there any areas that we can cut back? And it was so easily the solution was to get a second job. And she stuck with that the entire class. So for me, I felt like, wow, how many African-American communities is she going into with the room that's filled with single black mothers? And if you just know the statistics, 81 percent of single black mothers are the primary breadwinners of their home. Mm -hmm. So that's one person responsible for majority of the income that's coming in the house. But it's also responsible for raising the children. How does she find the time to get a a second job? How is that the solution? So it was a lot of just not understanding who's in the room before you give out just basic answers and basic solutions. You raise a really important point, Deisha. And I actually wrote a piece recently about uh, this idea of 50-50 shared parenting for divorced couples now in this country and for ever, it's been more often the mother who takes on primary custody for various reasons. But a leading reason is because culturally, we believe that mothers are better at parenting. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, disproven in many, many child psychology studies, not to say that dads are better either, but that the best case for a kid is to have two loving Mm -hmm. uh, parents full time, right? And and so- to your point about, well, let's get to the root of the problem. What's your opinion or what's your take on the the fact that the majority of single mothers in this country, particularly mothers of color, are the primary caregivers uh, when they get divorced? That definitely impacts their ability to go out and earn and save and all of it. So it's complex, I know, but just I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I'm sure it comes up in your community. Yes, it, it's a very complex conversation. And, and to be honest, to really touch on it, we probably would be here all day because yeah. we will also have to touch on why there are less African-American fathers in the home. And it's not always because they don't want to be. Right. We have, we have to consider things like mass incarceration. We have to consider yeah. things like that because that does play into a factor. But speaking to Jess, the fact that it is mostly African-American mothers in the home, I can say from what I've heard from my community and from my own experience that it is 
it is difficult because what you have is one person doing double everything. She has to be responsible for the income, responsible for the upbringing of the children, responsible for the entire household. So on the surface, we are doing amazingly well. But underneath that, you do have mothers who are unfortunately exhausted and who are unfortunately they don't have the opportunities to start building generational wealth as early as we would like to because most of our income is going into the household so we get stuck in a cycle where we would love to focus on the future but we have to focus on getting through today because that's all the income will allow us right what are some of the systemic policy changes that you and your community would like to see in an effort to support uh, women, women of color. I don't want to botch the statistic, but it is true that, you know, the average African-American household wealth is like a fraction, fraction, fraction of the average white person, white household wealth. And a lot of that is because of racism. What are some things that you'd like to see change when, when I think of policy, one of the things that's at the top of my list is affordable child care. Now, do you, if you ask me, do I have a full plan for what I think that looks like? It, it's kind of up and down. One, because I know on one hand, affordable daycare would, would work wonders for single mothers. But then I also know that that will change what the daycare workers are paid and they are not always paid well. But if the benefit of having affordable child care will do wonders for African-American women, mothers, and, and really mothers in general, because one of the things that I don't think that people understand is that women are more likely to face job disruption because of they cannot afford childcare. So if I cannot afford a child, a quality and reliable childcare service, my child is probably going to have to go to someone in the family that's just babysitting them. So they're not getting a fair shot at an early childhood center that is that's equipped with all of the bells and whistles. So now they're sitting and basically being babysat for eight hours of the day. Then what happens if that person can't watch them? Just randomly on a Tuesday, I'm having to call off work. Now I have to think, do I have to reduce my work hours so that I can watch my child? I may have to quit my job completely just because I can't afford child care. So on one end, when a lot we we are pushing for affordable education, I don't want child care to be left out of that conversation. I wanted to rank just as high as when we talk about college, because if I am someone and I am heavily invested into the leaders of tomorrow, I know that my leaders of tomorrow start as young as elementary, start as young as preschool. So if I can do anything to give them a head start with giving them quality and reliable and affordable early childhood, that's how I think we secure the leaders of tomorrow. Giving them a hand score at, at that age, that early, um, that to me, when I think about one of the one of the things that can be corrected in policy, I really think about how important it is to have affordable childcare. I could not agree more. And you have two children. Yes, I have two boys, um, ages thirteen and nine. As a mom who runs a financial empowerment company, what do you think is important for them at this stage to learn about money? 
at this, one of the things that I try to teach my children is delayed gratification. There is a lot of the, the basics, budgeting, saving money, managing debt. We have conversations about that. But at their age, at age nine and 13, I teach them a lot about delayed gratification and how important that is because they're in an age where they see something, they want it immediately. They see a video game. They're not even calculating the cost. They see it. They they want it. But I have to be honest with them, even with me knowing what I know about personal finance, even with me having worked very hard to get where I'm at financially, I still have to make sure that they are aware that it's just me. It's, you know, it's just one person. So budgeting for us is a saving grace. So if there's things that you want, we may not be able to get it right when you ask. But I show them how we can add that into the budget and work up towards that expense and purchase that. So delayed gratification is one of our top priorities in, in our household with me, with my children. You were recently uh, writing about your divorce on Next Advisor. And um, one of the things that I took away from that piece that was so important, I thought, to share with the audience was that the irony of what happened. So you described in the article that when your husband and your ex-husband and you got together initially to get married, you were both financially independent more or less and kept mm-hmm. like things separate or just felt like there maybe you didn't have to talk about money because you kind of were living your financial life. He was living his financial life. And it wasn't until the divorce that you realized oh, we were actually pretty entangled financially. And I think this is an important point because so many couples today are choosing to keep their finances separate in a relationship. And they may think that this is the cleanest, best way to tackle the money in the relationship. But what would be your advice to someone who's in a relationship now as far as the kind of money conversations they need to be having, regardless of the setup? Oh, yes. Regardless of the setup, because I do want to be clear there. Regardless of what a couple chooses to do, if it's to pull off the finances or keep a portion of them separate and maybe have one joint account, regardless of what you decide to do, having those conversations about money as early as possible is going to be key to, to me, what I believe to be a healthy marriage. You are absolutely correct. Me and my husband did not talk about my ex-husband. We did not talk about money at all during the marriage. But when we got divorce, that was the first time I realized how much I did depend on his portion of the the money that came into the house. I I didn't think about it before because the the rent was paid, all of our utilities were paid, we had transportation, daycare was covered. So I, I didn't think of it because things were actually getting done. But when things separated and it was solely on myself, It was a huge wake up call for me that I wouldn't be able to afford some of the things that I have without his income. So I had to do a lot of shifting post divorce. So my my number one thing is to have those conversations as early as possible. Talk about what the future looks like. One of the things that especially for women, I don't think that that we have the conversation enough. What's the expectation when we have children? I had expectations of my ex-husband as a father, but I didn't, I never voiced those things to me. I thought, well, you know, he, he, he should know what he's supposed to do, but there was expectations that I had that I felt would have been best for our household. I didn't voice those things because I just figured 
he knew. And I figured what we had was working. So sitting down and, ha- and having those uncomfortable conversations, I often tell people that to have a conversation with someone who you care about and create a financial plan together is one of the ultimate displays of love that you can ever show. Because money is such a, it's such a taboo thing. So to be completely vulnerable with a person about income and expenses and financial planning and how we're going to make financial decisions. What's the cap on how much we can spend before we have to check in with each other? Just making sure that your partner is secure in all of those areas. I don't think that there's any other way that you can express your your love for someone than to be vulnerable around something that we are mostly so protected about. What would have been some steps that you could have taken in the marriage to make the divorce process maybe more clear cut and and straightforward? And maybe you talked about how you got into debt as a result of the divorce uh, because of these expenses that you now had to shoulder with smaller income. How could you have prevented that? As an individual, I never should have taken a backseat to my own personal finances. And that's that's one of the biggest mistakes that I see women make the most is that we get into marriages. Maybe the husband is better off financially or he has more income coming in. So because now the larger living expenses are being covered, we often take the backseat to our own personal financial planning, our own personal finance goals. And we're kind of just floating. We're just going with the flow. And I did that until life stopped me right in my tracks. And when I needed a plan to fall back on, I didn't have one. When I needed to already get rid of my paycheck to paycheck lifestyle, it it was too late because now the, the divorce is happening. His income is out of the household, but the rent is still due. The core note is still new. The utilities still have to be paid. So it was like when I when I needed those things, I didn't have them because I completely had took the back seat to my finances for at the time I believe it was around three years. So at this mm-hmm. point, I, I'm working. I'm getting a paycheck. Things are getting paid. Do I know what's going on? No, we're we're just winging it. And so for me, that that would be the one thing. Don't take the backseat to your personal finance. Don't give up on your own personal finance goals and develop a plan that works solely for you. You can have a plan as a couple, as you should, but you can also have a plan that's for yourself. I always tell people, have a plan in the event of. No one is planning to get divorced. No one is planning to lose their spouse to death because that's another area. I talk a lot about divorce, but we don't consider that there are widows very young. I talked to someone the other day who said her husband passed away four months after they got married. No one plans for that. But always having a plan titled in the event of to me, I think would have saved me so much time, so much money because the income that I lost in the divorce I had to replace with things like payday loans, personal loans, and that I racked up $25,000 in debt just trying to get ahead. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I really appreciate what you said about talking about money in your relationship, being open and honest about money in your relationship. It is like the greatest act of love. It really mm-hmm. is because you're really putting yourself out there and um, being vulnerable. In your on your Facebook page, the broke black girl. I'm looking at it right now. Seventy 
almost 74,000 members. Mm -hmm. It's a private group. Um, Part of the mission, in addition to money management resources and strategies for women of color, you also focus on career development. And I I would love your advice right now, Daisha, for women and women of color as they look for their next job opportunity or career path. A lot of people are in transition mode as we emerge kind of from this pandemic. I almost think there's a a unique opportunity right now for people to really demand what they want as far as making sure that the job meets their pay expectations, has boundaries so that they can like parent and work at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think that that was maybe a silver lining to the pandemic is that employers couldn't, you know, some, not all, but I think a, a lot of the good employers were trying to accommodate more and put their employees first. So what would be your advice as far as how to advocate for yourself in the in your job search right now? Yeah. So one of the things that I think is very important is when you, especially when you are still working a, a nine to five, most of the skills that we obtain in a nine to five are extremely profitable. Depending on what type of office job you have, most of the skills that we obtain are extremely profitable and we can scale those. When we are looking for new jobs and we are trying to scale up, I think it's one very important to have confidence in the skills that you have. If you have a job and you've been there 10 plus years, it it more than likely is because you are great at what you do. And that is not to be taken lightly. One of the things that I noticed in my community was that there were not enough women that were asking for higher pay raises, that were not negotiating their salaries. So I encourage a lot of the women in my community to create what I like to call a brag folder. All of the projects that you worked on in this company, the things that you helped implement, some of the changes that you have presented that have now made the, the work system much better, put those in a brag folder. And when you're ready to sit down, whether it's with your current employer or a new employer, be ready to slide those credentials across the table and present yourself as an asset because that really is what you are. You are an asset to any company that you work with, especially if you if you have spent multiple years in one space. That was one thing that I really struggled with. I had a job that I absolutely loved, but I was not moving up. And I, I felt like because I was not advocating for myself, because I wasn't saying, hey, I think that I'm very great at this, but I also believe that I would be great at that. Hey, I did some research and I'm seeing other companies are playing or paying people in this same role this much. I would like to inquire about negotiating my salary. Hey, I worked on X amount of projects, but that's not actually my title. Can we discuss a different title? And what does that mean for me as far as pay? I didn't know how to do those things. But now that I look back, I really wish that I would have done those things because some of the debt that I got, some of the struggles that I had financially because of lack of money could have been changed had I advocated for myself and my pay in my career. Uh, a great resource, a great author and advocate for women in the workplace, women of color is um, Minda Hartz. Are you familiar with her work? She's awesome. I think that could be a great resource for your Facebook community. She speaks often about how particularly African-American women can take their seat at the table at yes. work and you know, the reality being that there's so many micro and macro aggressions that women of color face day in and day out at work, even in a Zoom culture, it, it can happen. Um, mm-hmm. And so just to be aware of that too is part of the journey. 
to be an advocate for yourself. Daisha, thank you so much for stopping by. I'm so glad we got to connect and highlight some of the great work that you're doing and your advice. Where are you based out of, by the way? I actually just moved to Atlanta, Georgia two months ago. I am originally from St. Louis, Missouri, but I just got to Atlanta um, two mo- in June. Awesome. Oh, there's uh, some really amazing um, female financial experts in Atlanta. You're in a, new, in a good community there. Yes. Yes. I, I've been seeing that. I can't wait to connect with some of them. Yeah. Well, thank you. We hope to have you back soon. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks to Daisha for joining us. Check out her website, thebrokeblackgirl.com, on Instagram and Twitter, at thebrokeblackgirl, and of course on Facebook, where she hosts a community of over 70,000 African-American women. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. I hope your day is so money. Money.